Hi, and welcome to this week's episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, Senior Research Analyst for Sports Info Solutions. Our company develops analytics and provides them to MLB teams, media, and fantasy baseball outlets. We'll give you a peek into our world, talk to important people around the industry, and try to make the numbers fun and interesting. On today's show, we'll be joined by one of the top defensive prospects in minor league baseball, Cabrian Hayes of the Pirates AAA affiliate, the Indianapolis Indians. My colleagues Andrew Kine and Alex Vigerman will stop by to share what they learned at the latest Sabre Seminar, and we'll have our latest listener email review and the ridiculous number of the day. But we start the show with a segment that we like to call... Batter up! When I talk to people looking to get into baseball, one of the tips I give them is to be ready when the time comes, even for opportunities that they didn't even know existed. Such is the life for Yankees outfielder Mike Tauchman. Tauchman was obtained at the end of spring training in a trade with the Rockies. The Lynn figure to mean much given how loaded the Yankees were in the outfield, but it's one of great importance to the Yankees in 2019. The 28-year-old Tauchman has played at an all-star level, filling in when needed for the Yankees many injuries this season. But he's not only shown a great bat, he's also got a terrific glove. He ranks sixth among MLB outfielders with 14 defensive runs saved. Tauchman has shown that he can catch the balls hit to the shallowest and deepest parts of the ballpark with success. Watch video of him and you'll notice that he seems to have a knack for handling the toughest ball, the low-line drive. And he's stolen a home run this season too. Combine that with an arm that has saved a run and you have a pretty complete defensive player. Yes, there's plenty of star power on the Yankees this season, but it's the guys who made the most of their opportunities, the Gio Urshelas and the Mike Tuckmans of the world, who have put the Yankees in position to contend for their 28th championship. And we're very pleased to be joined uh, by another baseball player. We had Kevin Pilar on in our last podcast, and today we're joined by Cabrian Hayes of the Indianapolis Indians. He's one of baseball's top prospects. He's arguably the best defensive third baseman in the minor leagues right now. He's got two minor league gold gloves. He's also the son of a third baseman who played in the major leagues for 14 years, Charlie Hayes. First thing I, I was thinking about, the minor league gold gloves. Is that a cool trophy? Oh, yeah, it's awesome. I mean, I mean you get to get something that you get you get an award for mine um, hard work kind of during the season. You get to see something uh, come from it, basically. Brian Hayes, uh, a defensive standout, uh, rated very highly by scouts, uh, rated very highly by prospect watchers when it comes in particular to his defense. So can you explain to us how this came to be such a significant part of your game? Take us through, uh, I guess, from childhood to now a little bit. I mean, yeah, it started pretty much with my first travel ball team, uh, the team out of Sugarland, Texas. Um, and it's a funny thing, we ended up, so there was like three teams that we were uh, looking at or whatever, and we ended up going to the wrong practice that day, and the rest was history. I mean, that was the team I played with for the next six, seven years, and a lot of them I uh, played with all the way up into through high school. So, um, yeah, it started there. I mean, we were five years old, and just the things that they were showing us, like my dad was like, yeah, uh, he needs to stay right there with them. I mean, we, we had we. We had it all the way down to, we used to, at practice, we'd wear Superman shirts, and when we play catch, we'd try to hit the uh, Superman logo. So, I mean, it started at a very young age, just little things like that. So that's really clever. That was, the Superman logo was essentially a target for you. Yeah, it was a target for us whenever we were younger. 
that, that's a good way to get a kid started. Can you tell us about the first time you think you made a really good defensive play? I'd probably say when I was in T-ball, I was like, this was right before I started the travel ball stuff. I was playing shortstop at the time. I'm trying to remember, like, specifically. Um, I think there was runners at first and second, maybe. And it was like a play kind of in front of me, but in the hole, kind of, uh, towards the six hole. And I backhanded it and tacked the runner and was able to uh, throw him out at first. So um, that was probably my first, one of my first, like, spectacular plays. Okay, okay, so I want to take from then to now, what are the principles that you learned then that you still apply to playing defense uh, all the way up to Indianapolis now? Uh, yeah, I mean, even to this day, I mean, I, anytime I'm throwing a ball, I'm trying to hit hit that guy in the chest because uh, our infield coordinator, um, he says if you catch her, they've got to be out. Can't make throwing errors. The hardest part of it is catching the ball. Once you catch her, they've got to be out. So. Uh, that's one thing I always, in between innings, I try to throw it as game-like as possible. Um, throwing it almost, not as hard as I can, but hard and trying to hit them in the chest. In the offseason, I really, I really work just the fundamental uh, side of it with my dad and my brother. I mean, um, I'll start on a knee, on, on two knees and just with a mini glove, just work on uh, just catching the ball out front. Uh, that's one thing I like to um, do whenever I first start taking ground balls um, from in my weight day is just feeling myself being my legs and just catching the ball out front. Um, I was watching a video actually like a few weeks ago of Nolan Arenado. He was talking about um, with A-Rod about like things that he likes to focus on um, in his work day. And so I just kind of looked at that and just kind of, Try to emulate that because he's a really good third base. <laughs> <laughs> I was, was going to ask you, who are the third basemen that you followed that you try to pattern yourself after on defense? Uh, I mean, Nolan Arenado, uh, Manny Machado, uh, Anthony Rendon. He's from Houston. Uh, I grew up watching him as a little kid. He played with uh, my older brother, so um, he's definitely one that I like to watch. And I mean, there's a lot of a lot of good infielders. I mean, I like watching Lindor, all the excitement and energy he has and um just i just like watching guys that make for me yeah matt chapman i feel like there's a lot of guys that are really good over there so what what kind of influence did your your dad have on your defense uh like earlier i was saying whenever i was young i mean when we play catcher in the yard if i didn't throw it right he would let it go <laughs> make me go run and get it until i uh threw it right so i mean he just always told me I'm not going to be able to get four and five hits a game. So, I mean, you got to be able to help your team uh, in another way, whether that be base running or if you walk or if you don't walk, you're not able to get on. I mean, you got to be able to impact the game somewhere else. So defensively, he was always tough on me about that whenever I was younger. That was one of the things that Kevin Pilar said to us. He said that being uh, being as, as able as he is defensively has kept him on the field through 0 for 20s and, and slumps. Yeah. You, you hear a lot Definitely. about how, how players say um, that they don't take their offense out into the field with them when it's going bad. How, just how hard is that, though? I mean, it's super tough. I mean, some, some days uh, you feel like you're not getting uh, umpires 
kind of making bad calls on you. You're not swinging it as good as you can. You might have a few strikeouts. I mean, yeah, we get, I mean, as, as, as much as people say that they don't take it out there, um, after an at-bat, sometimes you're just, you're just pissed off. And but you just got to find a way to just flush it and just flip the switch and get in the def- defensive mode for um, on defense. So as I've gotten older and uh, just known that, I mean, you just got to flush it and you're going to have another one and your next at bat. So, I mean, you just got to just kind of examine how it went or whatever and uh, just flush it and get ready for defense. So that's how I've kind of uh, took it as I've gotten older in the minors. What is the level of preparation like, especially compared to what they do in the major leagues with all the charts that they have and all the metrics that they have in the analytics? And I know that some of that has come down to the minor leagues. Uh, with regards to defense, though, how much are they telling you about where to, where to position yourself and what guys' tendencies are, and how much are they leaving it up to you guys to learn it? Yeah, they give us, um, they give us position cards where it'll say, like, my card will say, uh, pre 2k it'll say um so and so shade the line maybe and then maybe whenever they get to two strikes it'll say uh five six hole i mean we have a guy that um does all that for us or whatever before each series and, and they put it on our like position cards um but there's times where depending on who's pitching um our coach he says go with what you feel and if you if you like dead on feel that this is where you need to be then um i'll trust you with that so i mean it kind of depends who who's managing you and but for for the most part yeah they give us the position cards and then if they want us to move or if a guy likes to bunt i can run pretty well they'll move us in stuff like that so did they give you that in in class a and double a too or is it just triple a that you've gotten the cards because i'm intrigued by the idea that that's filtered down to the minor league level too yeah, um, I'm trying to think. No, we didn't have it last year. He would move us a lot, but um, we didn't have the cards. This year is the first year of the cards. I'm not sure if they have them this year. I'd have to ask. Uh, I mean, we had a few infielders come up. I'd have to ask them. I'm not sure if they have them in double A. We didn't have them last year, though. Two more questions for uh, Cabrian Hayes, um, two-time minor league gold glove winner, uh, and hopefully we'll get some hardware in the majors as well. What are you looking to improve upon in your defensive game at this point? Uh, just getting quicker off the ball, because I know um, watching games in the big leagues that the balls hit a lot harder. So just kind of that first that movement, um, just getting a feel for uh, reading swings and tendencies that pitchers like to do to certain hitters i mean you got to pay attention to all that kind of stuff and but really i think the first step thing is uh really big for me that's what that's what i would say is the biggest thing for me um coming out of high school just the first step just having a good clean first step and being able to read um that first hop too as well all right, last question for Cabrian Hayes, son of former longtime major leaguer Charlie Hayes. And before we talked, I purposely did this. I went and watched the end of the 1996 World Series, and I watched <laughs> the last out of a no-hitter. Uh, both ended with your dad making a catch. In the 1996 World Series, he catches the pop-up uh, from Mark Lemke, but right before that, he falls into the dugout and nearly... Yeah. 
injures himself. I'm amazed that he got up yeah. from that. The other was uh, the no-hitter against the Giants, Terry Mulholland. He spears a line drive out of the air. Uh, very impressive uh, catch. You can certainly see it on YouTube. Has your dad ever told you any stories about those two plays, the World Series and the no-hitter, uh, that you could share with us? I didn't know about the no-hitter one. I don't know about that. Um, but, yeah, it just seems like all the time, like especially whenever he's in New York, everyone knows about that uh, 96 World Series uh, um, last out. And yeah, I always joke with him about that um, whenever people bring it up. I always be like, well, did y'all, did y'all remember the pitch before when he fell in the dugout? So we <laughs> always uh, joke around with that. I'm impressed that he survived it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's pretty funny though. But yeah, he's never, nothing, nothing's really ever been, he's never really said anything else really crazy about it. Um, I just remember being amazed that <laughs> seeing that Jeter was a rookie that year and um, uh, Andrew Jones, he was, I think, like 19 or 20 at the time. So, I mean, I just kind of look at that and be, it's kind of eye opening to see how young they are playing in the World Series. What's the um, best catch you ever made? Best catch? Yeah. Funny enough, I wouldn't even say it was a. I wasn't even playing the infield. I was, I was in the outfield. I, it wasn't even a. It wasn't even an actual game. My dad was hitting BP. We were at like a practice. It was like a sixteen-year-old team at the time because he runs like a baseball academy back home, and he had a sixteen-year-old team at the time, and uh, he was messing around and he was hitting BP and. Um, we were on the big boy field at the time. I was only like seven or eight years old. And I um, actually jumped up like he had like a home run, but I jumped up and robbed it all the way in left center. So <laughs> I would say that's one of my, one of my uh, proudest best catches. So That's awesome. And hopefully the best uh, is still yet to come. Uh, Cabrian Hayes, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck the rest of the year and beyond. Thanks for having me. We thank Cabrian for joining us. My favorite thing in listening to him was talking about the cards and not realizing that they not only have the cards at the major league level for positioning, but they have them at the minor league level as well. And that makes a lot of sense because if you think about it, you want to have those guys prepared when they come up to the major leagues for what they're going to get when they get there and to have the positioning cards for the minor leaguers that they can use at the low levels of the minors and the high levels of the minors that makes a difference. Now, minor league stats are tricky, but he's only made two errors at third base all season. We chart defensive misplays. His numbers are low there. He was top five in defensive runs saved at AA, AAA last year at third base. This year, he's top 10. He's very advanced for a 22-year-old. Now, I wanted to get the perspective of some people in the scouting community. I talked to one major league scout who covers the Pirates, and he said Cabrian has nothing to worry about with his first step, that his footwork is great. We also got the thoughts of Eric Longenhagen, who does fantastic prospect analysis for Fangraphs. We'll close out the segment with his comments, which are pretty strong for Cabrian Hayes. Hi, this is Eric Longenhagen, the Fangraphs lead prospect analyst. And Mark asked me to say a few words about Cabrian Hayes' defense. And that's pretty easy because he's really good. He's one of like a handful of players who we have evaluated as plus-plus future defenders He's he's so exceptional at third base that like there are people and I count myself among them who wonder what it would look like at shortstop and he just has all those great 
the third base defense components, right? It's first step quickness and good footwork, and he's very flexible and his great hands and a strong arm. And really the thing that has stood out for me in my looks is just the composure, like under the 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 constraint of the, you know those four and a half seconds between when the ball is put in play and when that runner reaches first base. He just keeps himself composed even if he's making a tough play. Uh, and makes strong, accurate throws from all sorts of weird platforms. And so I think he's really excellent. He does a lot of things really well. Really hope uh, that power comes. We have uh, him ranked 13th overall uh, in baseball just because we anticipate at some point there will be some uh, offensive impact as well. And But yeah, right now it's it's a glove-first profile, but boy, what, what a defender Key Brian Hayes is. Looking for the latest compelling baseball and football research? Head over to sportsinfosolutionsblog.com to learn about the latest things we're writing about. We do in-depth studies, leaderboards, and deep dives on the most important players, teams, and trends. Both full-timers and video scouts contribute material to the blog, and feedback is appreciated. If you have any comments or questions, you may contact the author of the post or email us at info at baseballinfosolutions.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at sportsinfo underscore SIS as well. That's sportsinfosolutionsblog.com. We move on to our segment called Instant Reply. It's where we typically look at projects we're working on and articles we've written. A little different this week as we flash back to the Sabre Seminar Conference in Boston. We had Dan Brooks on a couple of uh, podcast episodes ago to preview the conference. Alex Vigerman and Andrew Kine from our company were there. Andrew presented Alex, besides Andrew's talk, what was the most interesting presentation that you saw? Uh, I think we both agreed that the presentation from Kristen Nicholson of Wake Forest University was really interesting. Uh, They essentially have a full biomechanics lab that's right behind their bullpen at their stadium. And and it includes having a pitcher's mound that has a force plate under it and having high-speed cameras in all kinds of directions. And basically, they have the ability to look at pitchers right before they come in or right after they come out of the game and get really immediate feedback on their mechanics and all that sort of thing. And they're also working on what I think is really interesting, a longitudinal study where they're basically taking guys and they're periodically checking them in this lab. And they're doing sort of full, the equivalent of a full body workup where they're checking the torque in their lower body and, and the force coming from their legs all the way up to their elbow and uh, checking all that stuff out and, and keeping track of it over the course of an entire year or multiple years and seeing then how their mechanics relate to their performance metrics and how their mechanics relate to injuries. And then essentially taking that and trying to merge it with psychological factors and come up with essentially a much tighter explanation for what might cause injury. This is the kind of thing that, that for the next five years could revolutionize the industry, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the thing that I think is really interesting is that they're, they're taking the results that she showed some of the preliminary results from that, those findings and taking guys who are able to maintain high velocity, high movement, high performance, while also having some of these key hallmarks of good mechanics. They have, you know, a couple metrics that they're using for that. And then saying, take those guys, what are they doing, and trying to translate those mechanical characteristics to guys who might have worse mechanics, but they could still maintain the high performance. Andrew, not everything at this conference was necessarily scientific-based. There were a number of uh, interesting talks that were given as well. Tell us about some of those. Yeah, I really liked some of the speakers they had from inside the game. And one on Saturday was with Gene Afterman of the Yankees and Raquel Ferreira 
of the Red Sox. They're the only two women to hold senior vice president roles in baseball operations departments. And a big theme of the conference was diversity in the sport and specifically women in baseball. And they did a really great job of promoting that. They were very engaging, very funny. Uh, and so it was interesting to hear how they've come up through the game. Gene Afterman actually has a law background and she does a lot of the rules and regulations work for uh, the Yankees. And it was interesting because it seemed like they, uh, Gene and Raquel actually work together a lot. And when you think of the Yankees and Red Sox, you probably think rivalry and not sharing much information, but those two seem to be very close and they actually work together quite a bit. And then one on Sunday was with Andy Barquette, uh, who is the assistant hitting coach for the Red Sox. He had a ton of great stories uh, from from his time so far with the Sox. And I, I liked how he talked about how they use information and the different tools in this this era of uh, player development that we're starting to see. And uh, on the information side, he talked about how certain players like Rafael Devers don't really like all the information. And frankly, someone like him doesn't really need it because he's so good and he can hit anything. Whereas someone like J.D. Martinez wants all of it and wants to be as prepared as possible. And then similarly, he talked about some of the different tools they have. And, and one example was a pitching machine that simulates different spin rates from, from pitchers. And he was saying how uh, certain guys like Mookie Betts, they really like it. They practice off it and it, it helps them. Whereas other players like Xander Bogarts, they don't like it. They just want to hit off the regular thing. Uh, so it was, it was interesting to see the difference there and, and how there's really a need for individualized player development approaches. There's not like a one size fits all, even though we're seeing all these new tools and all this new information that, that players are using to get better. Uh, so I, I think it really helped us appreciate the work that Andy Burkhead and other hitting coaches in the game have to do uh, to prepare their players in this environment. Yeah, certainly implementing information uh, is kind of its own thing within the uh, sabermetric community. Alex, what other uh, presentations did you see? There were some that, that I think had a little bit more practical connection to the game uh, that I know that you got to see. What, what did you find interesting from those? Yeah, so there were actually uh, a couple presentations. Both have some content that's sort of on the internet that people could use to try and get more information. The first is from uh, Ellie Ben-Porat, who had published a couple of articles on the Hardball Times about sort of reconceptualizing what the strike zone is. So instead of being this grid that everybody thinks of, the, fir the first thing is nobody calls the strike zone the way that the rules are set up. There's always this sort of curvature around the edges. It's more of a bubble, which he called essentially a super ellipse. It's a sort of rounded off square. And then you can sort of take the take that and split it into quadrants because in a lefty-righty situation, you're going to have slightly different uh, calls depending on the handedness of the batter, the handedness of the pitcher. And so you get these this sort of quadrant system, and then you can basically draw a circle for the heart of the zone in the middle, and you get this sort of two-tiered uh, eight-segment area that represents the strike zone. And it's sort of, a, it's a reconceptualizing, it's going to be generally the same, but it, it, that rounded off portion really does relate more to the way that, that the strike zone actually works. Your performance as you go away from the, the heart of the strike zone really does decrease linearly. So it has to be this sort of rounded thing instead of a square thing. Spoiler alert, we're going to get to umpires again in, a, in just a second. <laughs> there are a couple other things uh, though that were, were worth uh, talking about, and I'll leave it to, to both of you to kind of combine on this. Outfielder jumps were discussed, and we'll be did a presentation on that. Uh, C-flap helmets, uh, home run zones, things of that sort. I'll, I'll let you guys kind of split that up. Yeah, the C-flap helmet one was one that Alex and I both really liked. And, you know, you can think of the, these new helmets that you're starting to see that are used mostly for protection. You can think of Giancarlo Stanton. He got hit by pitch in the face, started wearing one. Um, but thinking about the actual application of uh, when you're in the box 
guys are actually probably more focused on the pitch. There's, there's not as much of like a distraction area. So this was actually a presentation that looked at uh, some of the before and after of specific hitters and specifically in terms of plate discipline and, and how those metrics might improve because it's more, it's, it's almost like a horse blinder uh, w- with this helmet. And so that was something that I think both of us really liked and something that if we can get our hands on some of that data, we would potentially like to look at as well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so you mentioned that the Stackcast one as well. So again, this is something that Tom Tango has has posted about some some extra uh, resources for people to look at if they're interested. But uh, Stackcast put out their measure of outfield jump, which is essentially how far you're able to get in the first three seconds of a ball's flight in the air, particularly for outfielders. And the interesting uh, aspect of this presentation by Kristen Austin was who was an intern with Statcast over the summer was that taking the, that three seconds and then making a split point there and saying after those three seconds how likely are you to make the play at that point and so you can basically measure how how well you're affecting your ability to make the play by those first three seconds that initial jump and then the the really interesting thing that I think that she did was to estimate what the effect is of outfielders giving up on a ball. You always see when, when a ball, especially when a ball's in front of a guy, if he knows that he, he has a pretty tough chance of getting it, he might just like let it drop so that he can at least make a good play on it and, and keep it to a single. And she did a good job of sort of estimating the effect of that on how likely you actually think it is to be made. Andrew Kine did a presentation as well, four-man outfields. We've talked about uh, that subject on the podcast a good amount. And uh, hopefully, uh, I presume it went well. It, he's nodding his head yes. So that- there we go. All right, let's close on that and let's segue to listener emails. You're out. All right, so we got three this week. I'm going to take the first one. We're each going to take one. Uh, and I'm going to start with this one. I hope I get the pronunciation on this right. IU Sharora 1999 asks What do you guys think of a stat for umpires that gauges their strike calling accuracy, like a war for umpires? All right, so I'm a little skittish when it comes to accuracy for umpires because we don't know exactly necessarily how perfectly everything is plotted, both statcast and other means of plotting. We don't know what a guy's exact strike zone is sometimes. Uh, But what you can do for umpires is that you can look at tendencies and trends. And we do that actually at uh, Sports Info Solutions. And he was asking about who are the umpires that have essentially the biggest and the smallest. The the umpires with the biggest strike zones, there are two that are consistently bigger than everybody else, Doug Eddings and Bill Miller. They're both longtime umpires. If a pitcher has them behind the plate, that pitcher can be assured that they are going to likely get a little bit more off the outside corner. They're going to do very well on outside pitches. They're going to do very well top and bottom of the strike zone. Their strike zones tend to be quite large. On the uh, lower end, pitcher umpires that have small strike zones where the pitcher is kind, can get frustrated, and you might see Brett Gardner uh, barking at an umpire or two. A lot of the younger umpires, uh, that seems to have been a trait, but in particular with two veterans, Dana DeMuth and Alfonso Marquez, they both have small strike zones that, uh, like if you measured the area, the, the net area in which they call a pitch a strike, I would be willing to bet that Bears is the smallest in baseball and that Miller and uh, Eddings have the largest areas. So those are your four umpires that I would say deviate the most from your typical uh, Major League umpire. David K. Barry asks, 
Which stat or stats would you look at to determine pitch use effectiveness? That is, a pitcher throwing their best pitch often is a pitcher throwing their worst pitch rarely, etc. He then went on to say, I'm interested to see if this changes when a pitcher moves from one team to another, especially if Team B is much more or less analytically inclined. Yeah, so in terms of the first part of the question in, in which stat that we look at for determining pitch use effectiveness, I think one that we look at a lot uh, when we're preparing game notes or, or other things of that nature is Fangraph's pitch run values and being able to essentially quantify from a run perspective how valuable a pitch is in terms of not only getting good results but also getting strikes uh, and, and just generally avoiding negative outcomes. And then for uh, in terms of throwing a pitch more often or less often, I actually wanted to throw it back to Sabre Seminar. And there were a few presentations given by uh, Glenn Healy, Vicente Iglesias, a few different people on uh, optimizing pitch mix. And to kind of boil down Iglesias' presentation uh, from a game theory perspective, it's really that your pitch mix isn't in equilibrium until your pitches are all basically performing equally or close to equally. Like if you can imagine if you have one pitch that's getting really poor results, the second one that's getting really great results, you should probably be throwing the first one less and the second one more. Um, but I don't think that we really have a great public framework to really evaluate those yet. I think that's something that, you know, given these presentations is something that the industry is working towards and people in the community are working towards. Um, and then in terms of, uh, you know, different teams moving from team A to team B, um, just looking at usage rates and seeing how teams like the Astros are sort of optimizing guys, um, arsenals. And I mean, Garrett Cole, when he moved from the Pirates, his fastball percentage immediately went down, started throwing more breaking balls and, and has gotten obviously a lot better results. So I think that it's something that uh, we're we're getting close on, but I don't think we necessarily have like one great framework we can really look at right now uh, to to evaluate that. And I think it's important in this situation to to also realize that it's not it's not enough to just figure out how to optimize a pitch mix. Like there are other factors at play here. I think we hear less about this than than we did a few years ago. But the idea that like certain pitches are going to put bigger strain on your elbow, it's going to potentially cause more injuries. I think we need to watch out for that when we're trying to find this this sort of optimal way of representing your pitches. A shortcut would be, as you said, Fangraphs, the pitch run values. You can find those in, on Fangraphs.com, on the player pages, or on the leaders pages. Uh, go to pitch values, both for hitters and pitchers. Uh, it is it's an easy. It's kind of I guess as you guys would say, quick and dirty way. Uh, to get the information. Alex, last question. This one comes from Pijalu, uh, who also goes by Burley Grimes on Twitter, a tribute to the Hall of Fame pitcher. He asks, what stats would you track as a beat-the-streak player? My current strategy is to pick guys with high barrel rates and low walk rates. I'm interested to hear what you think are stats to watch. So I definitely agree with that, that second part about having guys who don't have a high walk rate. Because the currency for hits is balls in play. If you don't have hit, put the ball in play, you're not going to get a hit. And so that, going with that is also hitting high in the order. If you don't have enough plate appearances, you're not going to have enough balls in play. And so you're, you're definitely going to want to look for guys who are hitting high in the order. Platoon advantage is going to be important, making sure you're getting the ball in play. There are other factors involved in, certain, in terms of quality of the pitcher. The ballpark might affect things a little bit, particularly when you're talking about places like Coors Field. Um, and, and then a lot of things from that point end up being more on the margins of that calculation. And actually, a lot of this stuff is built in, uh, pardon this for sounding like an ad, uh, we have our website, SIS Bets, which, go, which actually produces essentially the odds of getting a hit or not a hit. 
and it's perfect for a beat the street type situation. Thanks to the uh, three of you that wrote in. Also, thanks uh, to the folks at Saber Seminar, Dan Brooks and company. You can find them on Twitter, S-A-B-E-R Seminar uh, on Twitter. A uh, fantastic event that benefits charities uh, and uh, has been going on for a few years. Let's take a break. And um, this break, we'll deal with the commercial. It wasn't there. Hi, I'm Corey March of Sports Info Solutions, and I'm here to tell you about SISBets.com. SISBets.com is an advanced prop betting information tool powered by Sports Info Solutions. Now you can leverage our proven projections model to find value against the odds. You're never more than a few clicks away from knowing which pitcher may surpass his strikeout prop or whether your favorite running back projects to go over his rushing yards total. Just choose the type of bet, the player, and enter the money line to see the SIS Bets recommendation. That's SISBets.com. All right, it's time for the Ridiculous Numbers of the Day. Ridiculous Numbers of the Day. Andrew has ceded his position for a second consecutive podcast. He goes to Alex. So, Alex, in the form of a question, what do you got? I, I do have to give a little bit of background for this. So one of the presentations that, that we didn't talk about so far at Sabre Seminar was a presentation by Wataru Ando that was on home run zones. So essentially, if you take balls that are hit at a certain exit velocity range, that's essentially enough to hit a home run. And then you go in each park and you split it into a bunch of spray angles. So as, as you go across the park, you spray, put it into a bunch of different buckets. And then you say, what are the ranges of launch angles that would typically hit home runs in each park at each different spray angle? And you can basically map a player's home runs or a player's batted balls to what would be a home run in different parks. So you can basically overlay... It's, you know, it's, it's a more sort of dynamic overlay than what you might have seen in like the home run tracker on ESPN or something like that. So the question is, there was a player who had, if you mapped him to the other 29 teams in the league, was the most negatively affected in 23 different parks. So he would have lost the most home runs in 23 different parks. Can you name that player? You guys already told me the answer on this, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So just to pause here to let people think about it and uh, ponder, but uh, I, I believe the answer is Didi, right? That is correct. And, and to some extent, it's obvious given the way that we talk about him and the, and the way that he sort of exploded from a home run perspective. But I think it's, it's particularly telling just to, to think about it from the fact that, that in the difference would be the greatest for him in nearly every park in the league. And it's, it's so stark, and they actually showed a, a plot in the presentation where he's just, not only is he the lowest, but he's an outlier in almost every one of those parks. He is the dot that's far away from all the other yeah. dots. <laughs> all right, my question. So we did an article for The Athletic on uh, pitchers who, for whom the shift was most important. Uh, you can find it on the website. It was pitchers like Shane Bieber, uh, oddly enough, Yoan Lopez of the Diamondbacks. There were a bunch of Diamondbacks on there, and as you would figure that, the Diamondbacks and the Astros were certainly well represented. Uh, I wanted to look at it from the perspective of defensive entirety, though, as opposed to just shifts. Uh, and uh, because I was looking this up kind of quickly, I left it to a simple stat of Babbitt. Uh, the pitcher, we do an expected version of different stats uh, that is based on where you hit the ball, how hard you hit the ball, and what kind of batted ball it was. Uh, and from that, you can derive expected values. And this pitcher has a actual BABIP in the low 200s, and his expected BABIP is 109 points higher. He is a National League East pitcher. He is a young pitcher. 
and I want to see if uh, either of you can name that pitcher. You might have given it away there with the ballpark discussion. Uh, I have to think if it's if it's the ballpark, it's got to be a Marlin, right? So I'm wondering if it might be Caleb Smith, who had, who started off really hot, but then he hasn't been quite as good since then. Or is it, when you say when you say earlier, is it earlier this season or earlier generally? Earlier uh, this season. That I mean, that would be my guess. Andrew, do you have any? Andrew's blanking. <laughs> Uh, Caleb Smith is my guess. Caleb Smith is the right team and the wrong pitcher. The correct answer is Jordan Yamamoto. We got off to this great start, and I think that part of that start may have been uh, a little bit more than was uh, necessarily deserved. Uh, he got off to a great start, and he has uh, tried to find his way a little bit since. So, Jordan Yamamoto, thank your defense. And that wraps up this episode of the SIS Baseball Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. For Cabrian Hayes, Eric Longenhagen, Alex Vigerman, and Andrew Kine, and our producer, Justin Stein, this is Mark Simon. We'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS. 